and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We are your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hey, have you recovered from our a wild weekend? <laughs> and what a wild... What a wild and wonderful weekend that was. It really was. Um, in the Windy City. In the Windy City. A wonderful, wild weekend in the Windy City. <laughs> this was not our plan to do so much alliteration, but you know what? It's Keep organic. Going. You know, we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, we got back from Geek Bowl this past week, and it was, I mean, what words can I use to describe Geek Bowl? Fun. <laughs> wild. <laughs> Trivia filled. We got to hang with our... So social. So social. And if if we might borrow a phrase from the MC of Geek Bowl, we attended America's last public gathering. Yep. Uh, The last public event in the United States. (laughs) We got to go because we got in under the wire 100%. I hope you all are staying clean and healthy out there. (laughs) Wash your hands. Uh, But yeah, Geek Bowl was really fun. We got to hang with our Triviality Brothers. Um, and all of our other podcast friends and all of our other podcast friends we got to meet some wonderful listeners oh my gosh that was that was probably my favorite part of geek bowl weekend oh absolutely uh thursday night with the mixer was easily uh tops tops top highlight um we got to give away a lot of swag yes we did uh and uh, lauren was so much faster with her fanny pack than i was oh we bought fanny packs in order to distribute that said swag there were photos there was karaoke somebody'd be like Oh, I'm a, I listen to you guys. I like you. And Lauren be like, I was like, do you want a button? Do you want a sticker? Do you want a coaster? How about a coaster for your drink? And then, how about a magnet? Yeah, we had a lot of great swag. I gave away, but the thing is, I gave away all my swag, not uh-huh. allowing any swag for myself. Uh-huh. So alas, I am swagless. Mm. So after this, you're gonna have to give me some hashtag, hashtag swag. swag, hashtag JK, hashtag no swag. <laughs> exactly. So uh, for those of you that we saw at Geek Bowl, thank you so much. It was super fun. For those of you who didn't attend, we, we missed, missed you. you. And uh, there's always next year in Austin, Texas. Yes. Yeah. So it was a great time and we love you all. Yes. And shout out to our teammates, Eric and Danielle. Oh, yeah. Eric and Danielle were the greatest. I don't know if Danielle listens to this podcast. Maybe she does now. Maybe. Maybe now. <laughs> Maybe now. Hi, Danielle. And hi, Eric. We'll plug her We'll plug her business. Oh, yeah. She does pottery. Monsoon pottery. Um, In Chicago. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. She makes the most stunningly, like, elegant bowls, plates, dishes. She's extraordinarily talented. So, Monsoon Pottery. Monsoon Pottery on uh, Instagram. Follow her there. Uh, And, of course, our good friend Eric, who was on our episode, uh, on one of our episodes, and will definitely be on the podcast in the future, for sure. So, anyway... After all of that, Julia, tell me what you're going to talk to me about today. Well, you know, they say, they say, write what you know. All right. Oh, Lord. And um, as it turns out, so as a result of all of the madness that's happening in the world this week. Wait, and- are you doing an episode on the Pittsburgh Penguins? Oh, I, I should, but I'm not. Wait, right now. What, is it about the Steelers? Oh, that's another great idea. Give me that list. <laughs> Is it about <laughs> Pittsburgh? <laughs> that's that's, that's coming. Yeah, okay. But okay, not great. today. Okay. So, um, so yeah, with all of the, again, <laughs> with all of us being quarantined to our houses now. Yeah. And, we have two uh, separate and, microphones and, now. And <laughs> <laughs> Before we were just, we were just we passing were, it back and forth. <laughs> 
we got very good at it. We like just quickly <laughs> fling it across you the table exactly at exactly when the other person needed to yep. say something. No, I mean, <laughs> sorry, I keep interrupting you. So, uh, with all of our different states that are like no more public gatherings, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, um, turns out that. I know you're familiar with this, that my museum is currently close to the public. Mm -hmm. So I work at the Strong National Museum of Play here in Rochester, New York. Uh, We deal with the history of play things, toys, dolls, games, board games, video games. So I realized that this week would be a great time for me to do a little outreach about some of our collections wonderful um and in fact this is this is one of our most heavily utilized collections that i deal with in the archives Mm. we'll be talking about atari Ooh, cool because i know can i tell you absolutely nothing about that and i know a lot about it great so here we go everyone about this (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we haven't really done any like video, like misinformation hasn't done any video game yeah. episodes. Mm-hmm. That's a Mr. Information topic Absolutely. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to we're going to do our best here um, because this is kind of a, a big, a big name in the industry. Yeah. Or it used to be. So um, we tend to, so we're talking about Atari, we're talking about video games. We tend to use the terms arcade games and coin-op games or coin-operated games. Um, we, t- we use those terms interchangeably. Mm. Most arcade games tend to be video games, but there's also includes in that category pinball machines, electromechanical games, redemption games, or like merchandiser games, like those claw machines. Oh, sure, yeah. So those are all, those are all like coin-op games. Um, the first popular arcade games included early amusement park midway games like shooting galleries mm. ball toss games and then the earliest coin operated machines like fortune tellers like oh Zoltar yeah. from big mm-hmm. um handshake machines like ones that measured your strength of your grip oh my god i um, forgot about those and also ones that like played mechanical music so in the early 1930s the first coin operated pinball machines emerged um, except these ones didn't have flippers or plungers or really the types of features that we have come to recognize as being standard in pinball machines that kind of came about during the 1950s. Um, but by like 1977, most pinball machines in production switched to using solid state electronics rather than um, like mechanical um, workings, which oh, okay. is really, um, which is really interesting when you like dig into the the history of all of that. But mm. we're not covering that today. Okay. What we are talking about is the golden age of arcade video games. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, So that period of time is usually defined as the period beginning around the late 1970s and ending sometime in the mid-1980s. Oh, wow. So it wasn't wasn't, very long. Yeah, the golden age of arcade games um, wasn't that long, but it was huge. Mm -hmm. So a couple of standard arcade cabinet terminologies um, before I really get into more about the arcade um, industry. So... um, most of us at this point in our lives have played an arcade game or two. Sure. We have barcades around here now. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's museums out there that let you go and play arcade games too. So um, right off the bat, when you go to play a game, you go to the coin slot or the coin return. Um, that's where you're going to stick in your money or your token so that you can play the game. Sure. Um, there's the control panel. That's the level surface that's up at the top near the monitor of the game. Um, and the game's controls are arranged there. Um, and they sometimes have playing instructions, which is helpful mm. when you're a person like me who doesn't automatically know what to do when you walk up to, yeah. a, to a game. 
Um, there's the the monitor, like I mentioned. It's also known as the output. So that's the screen on which the game is played. And the, the monitor might display either raster or vector graphics. Um, raster tends to be the most common. So raster graphics are grids of pixels. And vector graphics are kind of composed of drawn lines rather than a grid of glowing pixels. It's like a like an oscilloscope, if you know what that looks like. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so it's kind of like flashes mm-hmm. more more so, whereas raster images are just pixels. And oh, so okay. those are those are definitely more common. The bezel is the border that's around the monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might contain artwork or also instructions for the game. The marquee is the sign that's above the monitor. Um, mm-hmm. It displays the game's title, usually really brightly colored, backlit, really want to like draw your attention, especially if you're in like a dark arcade oh, sure. to know exactly what game you're going to over there. There are printed circuit boards or PCBs. So PCBs are the actual hardware upon which the game runs. They're hidden within the cabinet. And PCBs mechanically support and electrically connect the electrical or electronic components using tracks, pads, and other features. Sometimes there's etched sheet layers of copper that's laminated onto or between sheet layers of a substrate like a plastic. And components are generally soldered onto the PCB to electrically connect and mechanically fasten them to it. So that's the part you don't see. That's the part that like our arcade game technician has to deal with. Oh, sure, yeah. Or people that manufacture these games. Um, You also generally have the power supply that is usually like a separate cord that is going to provide DC power to the arcade system boards as well as low voltage lighting for the coin slots and lighted buttons and Mm. any other features that's that's actually on the cabinet. And then there are the cabinet panels. So those are the sides of the cabinet that are usually decorated with brightly colored decals or paint. And they generally are supposed to represent the gameplay of their particular game. Again, like you're seeing a bank of them. Yeah. Um, you want to be able to like easily identify what game you're going to play. And there are a lot of arcade games out there that have really iconic side panels. Oh, art. sure. And then also there's a couple of different types of arcade cabinets. Okay. So most... So like if you picture, go ahead, picture an arcade game right now. Done. You're probably picturing an upright cabinet. Yes. So mm-hmm. um, they're usually made of wood or metal, about six feet tall. They have the control panel that's set perpendicular to the monitor, slightly above your waist level. The monitor is housed inside the cabinet um, so that you can see it at eye level. There's a marquee above it. And games are typically for one or two players, though there are some games that feature as many as four sets of controllers. Okay. There's also a cocktail cabinet, or Ooh. also known as a table cabinet. It is shaped like a low rectangular table, or can be like a circular table too, with the controls usually set at either of the broad ends. It has the monitor inside the table with the screen facing upward. Mm-hmm. So cocktail cabinet versions were usually released alongside the upright version of the same game. So they would manufacture both. You typically wouldn't see something that was just manufactured as a cocktail cabinet. You would, you would, they would put out different versions. Oh, okay. So you would see like, okay, for example, I don't know if this is true or not, but like Ms. Pac-Man. Uh-huh. So you would have an upright cabinet of Ms. Pac-Man mm-hmm. or you could have like a cocktail table version of Ms. Pac-Man. Yeah, you probably wouldn't ever see somebody manufacture just a cocktail cabinet. Like sure. they would do an upright and then they would do a cocktail variation too. So the cocktail is more of like an add-on as opposed to like an independent. Yeah. Like standalone thing. Well, it is a standalone thing. Well, sure. But yeah. I mean like you you wouldn't see a Ms. Pac-Man cocktail table and not a Ms. Pac-Man upright. Yeah. 
in existence. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So the cocktail tables are interesting. Like when you go into looking more into the history of that, because um, how arcade games were kind of marketed. Okay. You were seeing so much of it is like, well, we only have young men playing these in bars. Yeah. And so the cocktail cabinet became a little classier. You know, you could see it in like they were they were trying to put out there like you could see this in a fancy restaurant. Like maybe you'll be at your fancy Italian restaurant with your Chianti (laughs) bottle and your with the melting wax. And then next to you will be a cocktail cabinet that you that you and your date can play a game on. Oh, like so they were it was trying to like it feels very retro. It feels very like Poconos like heart shaped. (laughs) hot tub sometimes to that me, is, but like the way that some of these marketing photos mm-hmm. are from the late 70s and early 80s um but that's so funny i was it's, it's funny it's fun to to look at old marketing yeah, photos for, from that was companies. exactly what i was thinking of mm-hmm. like the poconos like champagne everything glass. is wood paneled yes. Yes, everything yeah. is brown. Everybody's wearing brown. Uh, for some reason. Or that weird ochre yellow color, which is... There ugh. were only four colors in the 1970s, as, as far as we I, all know, as far yeah. as I can tell. Um, anyway, the, mm-hmm. the, one of the main advantages of the cocktail cabinet was it was a smaller size. Mm-hmm. And the top of the table was often covered with a piece of tempered glass. So you could set your drink on it. Oh, And sure. it was often seen in bars and pubs and again in restaurants and things like that. And then there are also something is a, this kind of a bigger category deluxe or sit down or cockpit like these are all kind of terms Mm -hmm. under this kind of um, umbrella so those are those terms are used for games that require long stints of gaming or or like vehicles so you might have a fighting game or a flight simulator or like a racing game and so these cabinets often have a lot of equipment resembling the controls of a vehicle or Mm -hmm. like special weapons that kind of thing and you might see these cabinets arranged side by side so that players can compete together um i know there's like all these like arctic thunder was this like snowmobile racing game Mm -hmm. that's like a deluxe cabinet um there's all kinds of star wars games out there now that are big like sit down and you're flying the x-wing foul oh that's good yeah thanks <laughs> yeah Woo. you know i know um so yeah these cabinets can be really elaborate and sometimes they include hydraulics nowadays oh, to yeah. allow the players to move along with the action of the screen but back in the day like a sit-down cabinet was like super it, like you rarely saw them in the 1970s sure. and if you did it was because it was on like a driving game like a fire truck game or oh, okay. a race car game so now we are going to talk about Atari. Okay. And before we get into it, I'm going to tell you why I, I have to know so much about Atari. Please. Um, so in 2014, the museum where I work acquired what was essentially the remaining corporate archives of Atari. So um, I'm going to get into the company history a little bit. And then basically once the company ended up um, closing, not really a spoiler, but yeah. um, <laughs> there were collectors who bought off some of their remaining um, assets at sealed bid auctions. Okay. So yeah. um, there was an electronic recycler who had worked with Atari before and he knew the company was closing and he saw them palletizing things for mm-hmm. auction and he was like, ah, oh, what the heck? Sure, I'll bid 50 bucks on that pallet. Sure, I'll bid 20 bucks on that pallet. And mm-hmm. then this guy ended up winning a lot 25 pallets worth of stuff yeah. from from the auction. So um, he, it was in a private collection for about 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then the museum ended up getting that collection from him. So 
the, the collection showed up at the strong um, in a tractor trailer. There were 24 pallets. Ugh. It was I literally one of just, the, was one of the scariest days of my life. I literally just got a chill when because you said that. If you, <laughs> if you work in a library and archives, you used to like a box mm-hmm. or like, you know, people are like, oh yeah, you know, we collected so much stuff and, and it's like three boxes of stuff. So for, for this to, I was there for like a year at this point mm-hmm. for this to be like, here's 24 pallets worth of, of stuff. Here you go. Yeah. Was, was really terrifying. Uh, w- one of the things that y- you should know the listener, uh, for museum work is that rarely <laughs> do, paper collections like archive mm-hmm. collections arrive in pallets. Yeah. And it's it's funny you mention that because at this point in time now I do measure collections. Yeah. Um, you know, by the by pallet. the pallet load, which is again terrifying. Yeah. So we actually had somebody um come on board as a project archivist to yes. work specifically on the Satari collection. Shout out to Dane. He's the best. He's the best. Um, Dane came and worked for us for 18 months working just on this collection. Mm -hmm. And he got it in such great arrangement. Beautiful job. Described everything. Got everything preserved right. Got everything rehoused right. Mm -hmm. He had a little gaggle of interns that helped him. It was wonderful. He did an amazing job. And then he left me. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I have a 600 linear foot collection. Oh, my God. About a company that people are super passionate about yeah, that want to see it. I don't know anything about. Yeah. So I had to learn mm-hmm. <laughs> all about Atari. Bless. And that's where we are now. So the company history. Okay. So we start with Nolan Bushnell. If you've heard this name before, Nolan Bushnell grew up in a small town near Salt Lake city, Utah. And as a teenager, he repaired TV sets while also working at his dad's cement contracting business. Nolan Bushnell was first exposed to computer games when he attended the university of Utah as a computer graphics student. And while there he like other computer engineering students at the time played math and other simple video games on large and expensive mainframe computers, Mm. because that's how you could play a game back then was your university had one computer, <laughs> in the size of this dining room. Yep. And you could log on and you could, you know, play a little bit of a text game or yeah. Usually at that point game. it was it was all text games. Yeah. So anyway, Bushnell also worked a part-time job at an amusement park nearby and oh, no. he became familiar with coin-op electromechanical games. After college, Bushnell worked for Ampex, the company which built the first audio tape recorder. He then combined his knowledge of computers, televisions, and coin-op games to make the first mass-manufactured video game called Computer Space. Okay. Okay. Computer Space was based on the 1962 MIT space game Space War. So Mm -hmm. that was a game that MIT students built on their giant mainframe and played along. Um, And then Bushnell then licensed this game, Computer Space, to a company called Nutting Associates. Okay. So um, all of that sentence that I just said, we have some records from Nutting Associates in the archives. Um, Space War is now in the World Video Game Hall of Fame at the Strong. Mm-hmm. Um, we have two examples of a computer space cabinets within Jeez. the museum collection. So kind of a big deal, this game. And it's it's actually, the cabinet is gorgeous. It's yeah. like that beautiful, like glittery, 
like the glitteriness of like a bowling ball. Yes. Where it's like deep. Yeah. Like somehow for some reason it has like a depth yeah, and a dimension. It's like a sexy shaped cabinet. Ooh. And like it has like a rounded um, monitor area mm-hmm. and it's this beautiful glitter. Cool. Yeah. It, lo- it looks really cool. Um, so computer space, the first mass manufactured video game. Right. Okay. So although... Um, Computer Space was the first commercial video game. It failed to generate a lot of excitement and fair and fair. So um, he believed that he could do better like working on his own. So Bushnell, he took his business partner, Ted Dabney, and they founded a company called Syzygy. Syzygy. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. That is um, a term uh, that I think I used in a previous episode about the moon. Uh-huh. You want to tell me what that means? Ooh, uh, syzygy is when um, the moon. Oh, God. Get it. The moon and the. It's like an opposite. Like they're on the opposite ends, but I can't. I don't remember if it's we like have the moon. The moon, Earth, and Sun in a straight line. Yes. Is a syzygy. Yeah. Yep. It's like all like lined up together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you love that name. That's what the company was called. It's a lot of Z's and Y's. Mm -hmm. The name was already taken by a roofing contractor in (gasps) California. Wow. So Nolan and and Ted are not Syzygy now. They changed their company's name to Atari. Okay. Okay. So the name comes from a play in the Chinese abstract strategy board game Go. Oh, okay. So you have the game Go. The term Atari is essentially the equivalent of the word check in chess. So it's a a move. It means you are about to become engulfed. So like you make your play and go and your opponent goes Atari. Oh, okay. (laughs) I see. Oh, you got me. Yeah. You're, you're about to get roll real messed up. Mm -hmm. So that's where the name came from. Interesting. From the board game go. So once Atari was formally officially founded in 1972, Bushnell and Dabney hired their second employee, 22-year-old engineer Al Alcorn, who was earning a $1,000 per month salary. Their first employee was Cynthia Villanueva, who did administrative work for the company. Hmm. So Nolan Bushnell asked Alcorn to design a table-like ping-pong game. Oh, interesting. Something that, quote, any drunk in any bar could play. <laughs> so the result was Pong, Mm. a simple tennis-like game featuring two parallel bars and a moving dot that ultimately transformed the video game industry. Pong was first introduced as an arcade video game at Andy Capps Tavern in Sunnyvale, California. Mm. Legend has it that the game was such a hit that the machine broke down really early in it being placed in the in the bar uh not because there was something wrong with the programming but because it was so stuffed with quarters from the bar's patrons oh my god that's so So, like they had it in there for a couple days and they're like this is not working anymore man and they get down there to like see what they could do about fixing it it was just like so overflowing with quarters from everybody trying to play this game that's that's the legend crazy all right i mean it's a cool story at the very least so like the pinball and other penny arcade games that came before Pong, this game was for adults, not kids. Sure. It also broke ground in cost per game. So Pong was a quarter per play. Whereas oh. like pinball machines that were around were still about three or four games for 25 cents. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that happens around this time. Magnavox ends up suing Atari for patent infringement. Mm. Um, they argued that Atari had stolen the gameplay from their own light tennis game and Atari ended up settling out of court, but we won't only really get into that. 
Um, Atari's distinctive logo was eventually designed by George Opperman, who intended for the silhouette to look like the letter A as an Atari and for its three prongs to resemble players and the midline of the court in the company's first hit game, Pong. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. What a Um, thing. Opperman was also Atari's first in-house graphic designer and the logo. So Opperman came up with the idea, but the logo was actually drawn by designer Evelyn Sato. Mm. Yeah. Following Pong, the company continued to experience what was tremendous success. Absolutely. Along with, uh, so so they were like, we made Pong. This was great. Everybody loves it. Let's make some other Pongs, shall we? (laughs) Doubles Pong. Ooh. Super Pong. What? Quadra Pong. Uh. And Puppy Pong. Oh, okay. I'm in. Yeah. (laughs) So after all that, they had other subsequent hits, including games called Grand Track 10, Tank, Crash and Score, Breakout, Night Driver, Subs, Le Mans, and Fire Truck. So just like lots of racing and driving sure. games. Sure. Okay, yeah. so we we exhausted all the tennis games. We're doing a lot of driving games. Mm-hmm. In 1973, Atari secretly spawned a competitor that they called Key Games, K-E-E. It was headed by Nolan's next door neighbor, Joe Keenan, so that they could circumvent pinball distributors' insistence on exclusive distribution deals. So both Atari and Key Games could market virtually the same game to different distributors, giving each of them an exclusive deal. Interesting. So we're we're already kind of... Yeah. I'm making a lot of motions with my fingers (laughs) right now. She's making like sparkle motions with her fingers. We're doing a lot of businessy things that... Maybe are not ethical, we'll Maybe. say. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Atari became known for its really fun work environment. Mm. Um, casual dress code. Sure. Hot tub parties. What? Big, <laughs> you know, beer bashes to celebrate meeting revenue goals, etc. Sounds like a startup. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it really they does. They were in California. Mm-hmm. In 1975, Atari created a home version of Pong that they called... Home Pong. Wow. (laughs) It was marketed exclusively at Sears and sold 150,000 units under the Sears Telegames label. Two years later, Atari released another consumer product, the Video Computer System, or the VCS, later renamed the Atari 2600. It was a game system that used video game cartridges. Despite its massive success, the development costs were immense. And Bushnell, looking to offset costs to an established company, sold Atari to Warner Communications in 1976 for $28 million. Wow. Um, his partner, Ted Dabney, had actually left the company a year after it was founded. So Dabney oh, was okay. already gone at this point. In 1978, Atari grossed $415 million. Oh the company had only been around for six years. Yeah, that's crazy. That same year, Bushnell left Atari, or depending on who you talk to, was possibly forced out after oh, wow. several disagreements with Warner. So Bushnell was only with the company from its founding in 72 until 78. Oh, okay. By the early 1980s, smash hits like Asteroids, Battlezone, Missile Command, Centipede, Tempest, and Star Wars attracted millions of teenagers and young adults into arcades and firmly established the coin-op division of Atari as the premier arcade manufacturer. But despite all these successes, dark times lay ahead. Sure. Uh, Beginning in 1983, which we will talk about a little bit later in this episode too, the video game industry experienced a sharp decline. And Atari, as the largest video game producer at the time, began to rapidly lose money. Warner, desperate to unload a potentially un 
unstable liability, explored options to sell the floundering company. And in 1984, Jack Tremiel, the former head of Commodore, acquired the home and computer division of Atari from Warner, renaming the, that part of the company Atari Corporation. So Atari's coin-op division was separate from their home and computer division. Okay. Uh, soon after, Warner sold its 60% majority share of the coin-op division to Namco. And Namco subsequently renamed the arcade division Atari Games. Um, so we're seeing a lot of like, they're keeping the word Atari, but we're doing a lot of stuff with name changes around this time. Yeah. Operating as Atari Games, the coin-op division had moderate success in the 90s with games like Paperboy, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, Roadrunner, Gauntlet, Road Blasters, 720 Degrees, Tubin, T-O-O-B-I-N, and Hard Drive-In. So this, these were games of the 80s and 90s. But as competition intensified, um, Atari Games struggled to compete. And as the 90s progressed, Atari Games produced far fewer successful games and experienced several setbacks. In 1996, Time Warner Interactive, which was the parent company of Atari Games, sold the company to WMS Industries. WMS renamed Atari Games to Midway Games West to avoid confusion with another of their subsidiaries. Mm, okay. In 2003, Midway liquidated Midway Games West assets, effectively shuttering the last remnants of Atari Games. Okay. So the iconic name, logo, and some intellectual property assets of Atari are currently owned by Atari Interactive, a subsidiary of French publisher Atari SA. And as far as I know, that's just like three guys in a room in France. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask because, you know, the nostalgia factor is big right now, especially for Atari. So you see people like with T-shirts and hats mm -hmm. and like, you know, you can buy a you know, a lunchbox with like old Atari game stuff yep. on it. Like who gets the money for that since it's these, no longer a company? These guys. These three these French three guys. They're Garcon. the ones licensing shirts with Tempest and Missile Command on right. them. And Okay. Um, but they don't own all of the assets to all of the games, which is I something okay. that's, that's kind of interesting. But we'll talk a little bit more about those three guys in a room in France all right. in a bit. So I want to highlight some important Atari games you should know. Sure. All right. So starting at the top, Pong, 1972. Um, the only on-screen instructions for Pong were deposit quarter, ball will serve automatically, avoid missing ball for high score. <laughs> Great. There you go. All right. Here, play this now. <laughs> so the player controls an in-game paddle by moving it vertically across the left or right of the screen, and they can compete against another player who's also controlling a second paddle. And players will use the paddles to hit a ball back and forth. And the game is for each player to reach 11 points before the opponent. Points are earned when one fails to return the ball to the other. Bushnell based the game's concept on an electronic ping pong game included in the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the world's first home video game console. And in response, Magnavox sued Atari for patent infringement. Oh, sure. Okay. So Pong, though, was the first commercially successful video game. Um, during the 1975 Christmas season, Atari released their home Pong exclusively through Sears, and it was a huge, huge success that led to many other clones. Mm -hmm. So Pong. Great. Next, Breakout. Okay. 1976. There's a layer of bricks lining the top third of the screen, and the goal is to destroy them. 
Okay. The ball moves straight around the screen, bouncing off the top and the two sides of the screen. When it hits a brick, the ball bounces back and the brick is destroyed. The player loses a turn when the ball touches the bottom of the screen. So to prevent this from happening, the player has a horizontally movable paddle to bounce the ball upward that keeps it in play. Okay, so this is like, it has the same general physics and gameplay as Pong. Yeah, there's a ball bouncing on the screen <laughs> and this time you got to keep it up, up instead, yeah, of instead of side, side to side. side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a black and white monitor for this game, but the monitor has strips of colored cellophane placed over it so that the bricks at the top of the game appear I to be in see. color. That's cute. Mm-hmm. The original cabinet of Breakout featured artwork that made the game's plot appear to be that of a prison escape. Okay. And according to that release of the game, the player is actually playing as one of a prison's inmates attempting to knock a ball and chain into a wall of their prison cell with a mallet. So kind of like a single player pong. Sure. Getting out of jail. Mm -hmm. So this game has an interesting backstory. Um, Nolan Bushnell assigned a a guy named Steve Jobs to design the prototype for this game. Heard of him? Mm, The name sounds familiar. So, So Steve Jobs is like, He's an engineer. He's all super rumpled and hippie-like, and he smells funny and all this stuff, and he's working for Atari. Bushnell gives him, you're you're working on Breakout. You're designing this game. Um, the problem was is that they wanted to minimize the number of like computer chips that you used in this process. Okay. So Steve Jobs called his friend, Steve Wozniak, to mm. help him design the game, and he told him he would split the fee with him. If they okay. could like meet a certain number of chips involved to make the game, they were going to get a bonus. Okay. So Wozniak worked at Atari for four nights straight and also working at his actual day job at Hewlett Packard. Um, and they designed the game. It was great. Great. This gave them a bonus of $5,000. But Jobs kept that secret from Wozniak. <gasps> Wozniak only received about $350. He believed that Atari had promised $700 for a design using fewer than 50 chips. So... Oh Bush and I was like, Steve Jobs, design this game. Steve Jobs was like, yep, no problem. I got it. Are you going to give me a bonus if I do it right? They're like, yep. So he called his friend, Steve Wozniak, and Steve Wozniak did all the work. together, did all the work, and Jobs pocketed all the extra bonus money. And that is the story of Apple. <laughs> just there you go. Just apply that just later in time. And that is the story of Apple. He's such a dick. So ultimately, Atari was actually unable to use Wozniak's design. But Uh, by designing the board with as few chips as possible, he made the design actually difficult to manufacture because (laughs) it was too compact and complicated to be feasible with Atari's current manufacturing methods. But Breakout directly influenced Wozniak's design for the Apple II computer. Oh, okay. So there was some good that came out of it. He said, quote, a lot of the features of the Apple II went in because I had designed Breakout for Atari. I had designed it in hardware and I wanted to write it in software where now great so interesting interesting backstory huh a couple years later we get asteroids 1979 this is a space-themed multi-directional shooter game designed by Lyle Rains, Ed Log, and Dominic Walsh. The player controls a single spaceship in an asteroid field that is periodically traversed by flying saucers. The object of the game is to shoot and destroy the asteroids and saucers while not colliding with either or being hit by the saucer's counterfire. The game becomes harder as the number of asteroids increases and the game is rendered on a vector display in a two-dimensional view that wraps around both screen axes. So this is an example of vector graphics as opposed to raster graphics. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. um, this game sold over 70,000 arcade cabinets, becoming Atari's best-selling video game of all time. Wow, okay. So Asteroids is a big deal. 
Um, a year later, they come out with Missile Command, 1980. This is designed by Dave Thurer, who also designed Atari's vector graphics game Tempest that same year. As a regional commander of three anti-missile batteries, the player must defend six cities in their zone from being destroyed. The player's six cities are being attacked by an endless hail of ballistic missiles, some of which split like multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles. New weapons are introduced in later levels. There are smart bombs that can evade a less than perfectly targeted missile. Mm. There are bomber planes and satellites that fly across the screen launching missiles of their own. The game is played by moving a crosshair across the sky background with a trackball and pressing one of three buttons to launch a counter missile from the appropriate battery. This is 1980. Okay. So this is like Cold War shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're a missile could come at you at any time. Yeah. So when the game was originally designed, the six cities of the game were actually meant to represent six cities in California. They were Eureka, San Francisco, San Luis Obispo. How do you say that? San Luis, San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo? Yeah. San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, Los uh-huh. Angeles, and San Diego. Later in development, they removed the names of the cities um, because it was kind of scary to be like, you have to protect, you have to protect these six cities yeah. from getting bombed. Jeez. Uh, but while programming Missile Command, Dave Thur suffered from extreme nightmares of these cities being destroyed by a nuclear blast. Oh like, my he gosh. got a lot of like PTSD from working wow, on this game, would- which was like a super successful Atari video game. That's surprising. He really got emotionally involved with yeah. this. Yeah. Jeez. Dave, real sensitive guy. Bless him. Back to a game you probably are more familiar with centipede oh yeah from 1981 so centipede was co-designed by donna bailey oh and ed log oh donna bailey what that's nice that's a lady's name isn't it it's a lady's name centipede is a fixed shooter arcade game that ultimately became one of the most commercially successful titles of the video arcades golden age rather than taking place in outer space or in a fantasy realm centipede shrunk players down to conquer the world of insects players use a trackball to control a cannon at the bottom of the screen that's filled with colorful mushrooms and from the top of the screen there's a centipede that zigzags away through the mushroom field The centipede changes directions and moves down another row once it reaches the edge of the screen or runs into a mushroom, and players must destroy the mushrooms to get a clean shot at the centipede. The player has to destroy the centipede, shooting it section by section, and when struck, a segment turns into a mushroom and the remaining centipede breaks off into smaller fragments. Once an entire centipede is destroyed, the screen changes color and a new centipede spawns again at the top, alternately moving quickly or slowly depending on the game level. There are three other creepy crawly creatures like spiders, scorpions, and fleas that act as additional threats and targets for players. So this is often credited as the game that drew women to playing video games in the arcade. So... Donna Bailey, one of the only female programmers in the 1980s video game industry, wanted the game to be compelling and look appealing in a dark arcade. Mm -hmm. So she chose bright pastel colors for the graphics with pinks and greens and violets splashing each level. Okay. And there were lots of competitor knockoffs. Um, The official Atari sequel to this game, though, was Millipede. Oh, yeah. That came out a few years Mm -hmm. later. Um, Tempest from 1981. Tempest was one of the first games to use Atari's color quadrascan vector display technology. It was also the first game to allow the player to choose their starting level. Oh. Interestingly enough. Oh, that's interesting. 
and it had a rotating dial for a controller. So they're like Atari's playing around with like when we think of video games, we tend to think of like here's a joystick with a button. But we got, you know, there's things you drive. There's a trackball. There's yeah. dials. There's buttons. There's yeah, all kinds of things happening. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So the objective of Tempest is to survive for as long as possible and score as many points as possible by clearing the screen of enemies that appear on the playing field. There's a player's ship that can fire rapid um, shots down a tunnel, destroying any enemies within the same segment. It's also equipped with a super zapper, which destroys Ooh. all enemies currently on the playing field once per level. The game was initially meant to be a 3D remake of Space Invaders, but early versions had a lot of problems, so they created a new design. And Dave Thurr worked on this too. He says that the design came from a nightmare where monsters crawled out of a hole in the ground. Poor Dave. Poor Dave. He needed just some like chamomile tea and maybe some warm milk. And have a therapist. Yeah. Like, I just imagined him coming into the office with like dark circles under his eyes and he's like, guys, I have an idea for a video game, but I don't think I should unleash it on this world. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. I can picture that. Yeah. And uh, during the prototype stages, the game was, um, was called aliens and then vortex and then finally titled tempest. So Mm. real are real arcade people. Unlike me, I actually know this game and, and really enjoy it. Um, in 1983, we get the video game version of Star Wars. Oh, wow. So okay. it was a first person rail shooter designed by Mike Halley. And the game uses 3D color vector graphics to simulate the assault on the Death Star from the 1977 hit film Star Wars. Mm. Um, it started life as a game by designer Jed Margolin called Warp Speed. And then it was adapted to the Star Wars theme. So oh, okay. Jed kind of already had this idea for a game. And then when they actually got like the Star Wars license, they were like, this is perfect yeah so the game features digitized samples of voices from the movie including mark hamill as luke Luke skywalker Skywalker. yep (laughs) um alec guinness as obi-wan kenobi james earl jones as darth vader harrison ford as han solo and then beeps from r2d2 and growls from chewbacca um, assuming the role of Luke Skywalker, the player pilots an X-Wing fighter from a first-person perspective. And the controller, again, isn't a typical joystick, but it's a yoke with four buttons on it. So you oh. have to, like, really Yeah, you have to, like, use get your skilled. pinky and your mm-hmm. thumb. Mm-hmm. Okay. But big hit game. Like, oh, I know, yeah. like, Star Wars came out in 77, but, like... There wasn't a video game for it. Yet. No. Whereas like nowadays, like sometimes a video game version of a game comes out before, before the, the movie, movie even comes mm-hmm. out. Yeah, exactly. And then finally, Gauntlet, 1985. Okay. And this game has bit me in the ass before because we had some trivia questions about it. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know anything about this game. Gauntlet is a fantasy themed hack and slash arcade game noted as being one of the first multiplayer dungeon crawl games. Okay. It was initially available only as a dedicated four player cabinet. So this is a four player arcade game. Okay. The game is set within a series of top down third person perspective mazes where the object is to find and touch the designated exit in every level. An assortment of special items can be located in that level that increases the player's character's health, unlock doors, gain more points and give magical potions that can destroy all of the enemies on screen each player controls one of four playable fantasy based characters thor a warrior merlin a wizard Mm. thyra a valkyrie or questor an elf Ooh. These characters are named on the cabinet artwork, but in-game they are referred only by the title of their classes. 
Each character has his or her own unique strengths and weaknesses, and the enemies are an assortment of fantasy-based monsters, including ghosts, grunts, demons, lobbers, sorcerers, and thieves. Each enters the level through specific generators, which can be destroyed. So there are no bosses in the game, but the most dangerous enemy is death that can only be destroyed by using a magic potion. Of course. So this was like, um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons got huge in the 1970s, oh, early yeah. 1980s. And this was like, now you could go to the arcade and, and you play could it. play with other people a game yeah. that's similar to... Like the stories that you've been playing for years and years. Yeah, I bet so, that was like a huge deal. It was a big deal. So those are the games I wanted you to know. And okay. again, I'm going to talk about some of the names of people associated with Atari you should know. I mentioned him earlier, Nolan Bushnell, um, co-founder of Atari, worked there from 1972 to 1978. Um, Nolan Bushnell has been employing your girl, Julia Novakovic, for... I don't know, a lot of my life, it turns out. Because in 1977, Nolan Bushnell founded Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza Time Get Theater. Get out! Oh, my God. Are you for real? That, I am for real. That's freaky deaky, yes. Julia. So, if you didn't know, I worked for Chuck E. Cheese for four years. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the best time no, of my life. No, say. absolutely it not. It was nice because I could say, I'm coming home for a week from college and they would give me 40 hours on the schedule because I was a good worker. Yeah, because you showed up on time and I, get, I was need all the pizza, in the kitchen. I guess. So good in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, yes, I had to dress up as the mouse. Like everybody has to dress up as the mouse. Sure. Like your first year working there. I could fix. I, I mean, f I use the term loosely fix. Like if an arcade game like got jammed, like with the coins or the tickets or whatever, mm -hmm. I knew how to like fix that. Oh, if sure. I was yeah. like working that part of the game room too. Um it's a, I don't talk a lot about it. No, I, I mean, you have like, you have like two or three good Chuck E. Cheese stories that I've heard you tell in mixed company. And I think, I mean, you know what? The fact that you give us just a little bit of taste of that mm. is, is good enough. Yeah. You know, you don't have to talk about yeah. it. So it's good of you to, to share this with yeah. our listeners. That's so, kind. So yeah, Nolan Bushnell founded Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza Time Theater. Wow. To expand video game arcades beyond the more adult locations into family-friendly settings. Because basically you're like, okay, we got like guys in bars smoking and drinking. But like there's a lot of other people out there yeah. that would play these games if they didn't have to go to a bar where exactly. you smoked and drank and that kind of thing. Smoked and drank. Jesus, Julia. So anyway, <laughs> the like first location of Chuck E. Cheese opened in San Jose, California in 1977, and it was labeled as the first family restaurant to integrate food, cheap animated entertainment, mm. and an indoor arcade. Originally, he wanted to name his establishment Coyote Pizza, but he learned that the animatronic costume that he had ordered was actually a rat instead of a coyote. Oh, no. So he decided to change the name to Rick Rat's Pizza. But then he and the company changed it to Chuck E. Cheese instead. And what does the E stand for? Entertainment. Entertainment. <laughs> the E stands for entertainment, folks. So in 1984, Bushnell sold CEC to Showbiz Pizza Place. Okay. And he went on to work for various venture products, including software, VR, and other video game technologies. So is is Nolan Bushnell your personal Alice Cooper, Julia? <laughs> is it? I wonder, I wonder, 
I mean, he is this it? Like He's the been two in- ghosts of this podcast <laughs> is Nolan Bushnell and Alice Cooper. Now the problem is we know what Alice Cooper looks like. Nolan Bushnell. Most people couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Uh, yeah, I guess so. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, the co-founder of Atari, Ted Namney, he was around in on this earth from 1937 to 2018. Oh, wow. Um, he died recently, huh? So he left the company in 1973, a year after it was founded, mm-hmm. over the falling out with Bushnell and Al Alcorn. And he worked in the computer industry for another decade. And then he managed a grocery store in California. Oh, okay. You know, That's nice. nice. Um, he died in 2018 from complications with esophageal cancer. Oh, that's sad. And the other guy I mentioned earlier, Al Alcorn, on this earth from 1948 until the present, um, he is an engineer and computer scientist who designed Pong. He hired Steve Jobs. Mm. He worked on the Atari VCS home console. He ended up leaving Atari in 1981 and then ended up consulting with various startups in Silicon Valley. So he's a he's another big name that's associated with Atari. Okay. So we talked about the arcade. Yeah. All right. So what happens if you don't want to play a game in public what happens if you want to play a game at home yeah all right so we'll talk about atari's home systems okay um so again and i and i alluded to this before it's important to know that atari did not create the first home video game console Mm. in 1972 magnavox released the odyssey which was designed by ralph bear who later went on to create the electronic game simon among other games um and at the strong museum of play in rochester new york we have the papers of ralph bear in the archives Mm -hmm. So the Magnavox Odyssey consists of a white, black, and brown box that connects to a television set and has two rectangular controllers that are attached to that by wires. Um, The Odyssey is capable of displaying three square dots on the screen in monochrome black and white with differing behavior for the dots depending on the game that's being played. There are no sound capabilities. Uh, Players place plastic overlays on the screen to create visuals for the game. So it's really... Once you actually like see these overlays, you're like, oh my gosh, this makes total sense. So say, for example, with Odyssey, there was a game that took place in a haunted house. Okay. So you would have a big plastic sheet that had like a haunted house printed on it with like cutouts for windows and doors Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. You would tape that to your TV screen so that when you played this game, it looked like your dots were like moving around this haunted house. I see. So it was, you were creating the environments for each one of these games, depending on like what you like punched in, like I want to play haunted house. And then the, the applique basically Mm -hmm. was like lined up to the dots. Yes. Conceivably. And then you would play around. Exactly. The, exactly yeah so that was the first home video game system sure yeah and the odyssey console came packaged with dice paper money and other board game paraphernalia that would also go along with the games and also a peripheral controller which was the first video game light gun was sold separately so the magnox odyssey first home video game console 1972 it just didn't do very well like a lot of people didn't know what it was Mm and were very confused by the overlays and yeah. like nobody had, you know, this was the first one on the market. Yeah, so, exactly. There's no precedent for it. Yes. Yeah. So after that, three years later, we get Atari Home Pong. Mm-hmm. Comes out in 1975. It was also the first use of a microchip in an Atari product and had been in development since 1974 under the lead of Al Alcorn and Harold Lee. So this console, Home Pong, could only play one game. 
Yeah. Pong. That's, that's it. it. You're you like the game in the arcade? <laughs> that's what you can you play go. with mom and dad at home. Pong. Like the arcade, it's two player only, but the score was kept on screen, which was a cool feature that the Odyssey didn't have. I see. Um, but the big one that everybody knows, the Atari Video Computer System, the VCS, later renamed the Atari 2600, came out in 1977. This was credited with popularizing the use of microprocessor-based hardware in games stored on ROM cartridges. Those were a format first used with the Fairchild Channel F in 1976, rather than dedicated hardware with games physically built into the unit. So okay. Home Pong, you could only play Pong because that's what the unit was. The Fairchild Channel F and the Atari VCS, you had the hardware and you had separate cartridges that you would be able to plug in. Okay. The Fairchild Channel F is the first um, home video game system that used cartridges. Okay. Um, and we have materials from Jerry Lawson, who was the engineer at Fairchild who designed that in the archives where I work. So, so for all intents and purposes, you could say that Atari was not the first home video game system. Right. But it was the first popular yes. video game system. Absolutely. Great. Yes. Um, so the VCS was originally priced at $199. Um, today, that's about $840. So that's oh, a big chunk of change. Yeah. It was bundled with two joystick controllers. It also had some paddle controllers and a game cartridge. The Atari VCS launched with nine simple low-resolution games in two Kibibyte cartridges. Kibibyte, abbreviated capital K, lowercase i, capital B. That's 1024 bytes. That is slightly larger than one kilobyte. Wow. That's, Why are you shaking your head at me? Let the record show our engineer does not believe in the kibby bite. <laughs> the cartridges were two kibby bite cartridges. I believe it. I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> it's a marketing scam, kibby bites. It's not real. <laughs> So these games were so like, like you think today about like file sizes of things. Like Mm -hmm. you can take a photograph on your phone and it's two megabytes. Yeah, absolutely. But this was a game, a whole game that was like less than two kilobytes for a whole game. For an entire game, yeah. Would you think about like the graphics capabilities of like Halo now, you know, or or I can't think of a single other video game. That was a really great example, Lauren. (laughs) This moment. Um, but yeah, like Call of Duty, like mm-hmm. these things are so like, they're so realistic now. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how far we've come. So, um, so like this, this hardware was out here, but then Activision, which was a company founded by four former Atari programmers, started developing third party games to be used on cartridge systems, including yes. the VCS. Okay. So this was renamed in 1982 to the Atari 2600, which was derived from the manufacturer part number CX2600. Its widespread popularity, relative affordability, and abundance of software titles kept it in production for 15 years. Oh, okay. And the um, Atari 2600 was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in 2007. Where's the National Toy Hall of Fame, Lauren? It's in uh, the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, Uh New York. Yes. Across the system's lifetime, it was estimated that 30 million units were sold. Holy cow. So chances are your parents or your uncles or your grandparents, maybe you... Mm-hmm. had an Atari 2600. Yep. So you know exactly what we're talking None about. None of the Teglaferos had anything like that. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but they knew someone who did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they had no interest in it. But <laughs> just as an FYI, yeah. After the Atari 2600, we have the Atari 5200, 
comes out hey. in 1982. Um, it was a higher-end complimentary console. And it was created to compete with Mattel's Intellivision. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 5200's internal hardware is almost identical to that of Atari's 8-bit computers, but it was discontinued after two years on the market. In 1986, we get the Atari 7800. It was almost fully backward compatible with the Atari 2600. And it was the first console to have backward compatibility without the use of additional modules. It was designed by an outside company, the General Computer Corporation. And according to Atari, due to manufacturing problems, it only managed to produce and sell about 100,000 units by 1986, including some that had been just sitting in a warehouse for two years. Um, A common complaint in 1986 with this console was the lack of games, including a gap of months between new releases. Mm. And it was discontinued in 1992 when Nintendo's NES controlled Uh 80% of the North American market. Holy cow. So Atari like starts out really great at home Mm -hmm. and then Nintendo swoops in. And then it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, in 1987, you have the Atari XE video game system, the XEGS. It's an industrial redesign of the Atari 65 XE home computer, and it was the final model in the Atari 8-bit family. Uh, with the keyboard, it boots identically to an Atari XE computer, and they packaged it as a basic set consisting of only the console and joystick with a deluxe set with a, um, with also with a light gun as two. Mm. The Atari Panther. Okay, it's not a number. Hmm. The Atari Panther was a 32-bit video game console that was supposed to be the successor to their previous two products, the 7800 and the XEGS. And it was also meant to compete with the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis with a planned release for 1991. But it was abandoned and canceled in favor of the next model, the Atari Jaguar. Okay. 1993. The Atari Jaguar is a 64-bit home video game console. And with the release of the Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation in 1995, sales of the Jaguar continued to fall, ultimately selling no more than 250,000 units before it was completely discontinued in 1996. Commercial failure of the Jaguar prompted Atari to leave the video game console market completely. Wow. And in May 1999, Hasbro, who owned the rights at that time, declared the Atari Jaguar an open platform and announced that it had released all rights to the console console opening the doors for extensive homebrew development so oh that interesting they were like yep mm, this we're Hack not making it. this anymore go for it yeah and so there is like a big community of people who have um who have created games for the atari jaguar because they took like the all of the copyright stuff away and and allowed people to do that so that's kind of cool that's so really cool the atari jaguar is the last atari console hmm and finally, I alluded to this a little earlier, but I have to cover this. The video game crash of 1983. Yeah. Tell me all about it. I will, Lauren. I will. <laughs> um, so this is a large scale recession in the video game industry that occurred from 1983 to 1985, primarily in the United States. Um, the crash was attributed to several factors, including market saturation in the number of game consoles and available games mm-hmm. and waning interest in console games in favor of personal computers. Revenues for video games peaked at around 3.2 billion with a B in 1983 and then fell to about 100 million by 1985, dropping 97%. Holy cow. Yes. That is such a huge tumble. Yes. 
So the first major problem contributing to this crash was an absurd oversaturation in the video game console market in North America. By 1983, gamers had dozens of console choices to pick from, Mm. and this created a situation of confusion for the average customer. Each console came with its own set of games from the company that manufactured it, as well as that expansive web of third-party games that were available. Oh, sure, yeah. Right, so consoles at the time included. And by 1983, here's, here's everything you could pick from. Atari 2600, Atari 5200, Sears Telegames, Intellivision, Intellivision 2, Fairchild Channel F, Magnavox Odyssey, Bally Astrocade, ColecoVision, ColecoGemini, Vetrix, Emerson Arcadia, and actually many more. Wow. Um, And because of this overabundance of consoles, there was little continuity throughout gaming with friends. So Mm. after the success um, of the video game industry had experienced in the 1970s and early 80s, many companies were rushing to produce video games as quickly as possible. And this became a huge problem because at the time, console makers had lost control of what games were being developed for their platforms. In the early 1980s, Atari had unsuccessfully sued for the right to regulate third-party development for their devices. And this failure set a precedent that allowed any company to develop games for any device and any blocks that were put in place by the console makers were ended up being like reverse engineered and ignored. So what happened is that an increasing number of third party developers totally saturated the home console market with new game titles. And for every quality third party manufacturer like um, Activision or Mm. iMagic, like companies that were actually making great games, there were so many development firms that were rushing poorly designed games into stores. And this trend of bad games culminated with several high-profile flops that financially crippled video game companies and created a backlash against console games. Sure, yeah. Um, And the most frequently cited example of this is the Atari video game... E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Mm -hmm. a game so bad that it is widely considered the worst video game of all time. So the team making E.T. was famously only given six weeks to develop, test, and market the game (laughs) before it was shipped out for the holiday season. We give more time to put together a plan for an exhibit at a museum. You give more time to be like, you have to draft 200 words for that label copy on the wall. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They had six weeks to develop, test, and market this game. The video game they produced had little to do with the actual movie E.T. and was an immediate failure. When you see like um, gameplay captures of this game, you're like, what the? Yeah. There's a documentary about it that I think I I saw at some point. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) millions of copies of this game were never sold and they... um, well, ultimately, we're buried in a landfill in Alamogordo, <laughs> New Mexico. The lead developer of ET actually said of the game, quote, we literally had six weeks to produce a brand new game, manufacture it, package it, and market it. It was a disaster. The programmers hated it. Nobody liked the game. <laughs> so again, Atari reportedly buried hundreds of thousands of unsold game cartridges and other materials at this landfill, and the story became an urban legend. But an excavation in 2014 confirmed the myth as fact, and they turned up thousands of individual games, including including copies of both Centipede and E.T. and many, many other games. The final contributing factor to the crash was competition from personal computers. So during the early 80s, the major personal computer companies were locked in a fierce price war, which brought down the overall cost of a computer drastically. By 1983, the cost of owning a home computer was comparable to owning a game console, and many consumers made the choice to instead buy a computer. Yeah, because if you could either choose to buy a video game console, which is just to play games, Uh or buy a computer that you can play games on and do a bunch of other cool stuff, 
why would you... Are you reading my notes? (laughs) I'm just saying that's what I would do. So that's why the crash happened. And okay. when we talk about it, we mean mainly home video game stuff, but it did impact the arcades sure, as well. Sure, yeah. As well. Um, okay. By 1985, sales of video games had started to recover following the introduction of the Nintendo Entertainment System to the North American market. And in 1986, Nintendo's president, Hiroshi Yamuchi, said that the Atari collapsed because they gave too much freedom to third-party developers and the market was swamped with rubbish games. Wow. Although the collapse of the video game industry in 83 was not just an Atari problem. Um, The statement pretty much sums up perfectly what had led to the industry's demise. In order to avoid making this same mistake, Nintendo produced fewer high-quality video games and strictly controlled third-party development. And they did this by introducing a checking integrated circuit for the first time to stop unauthorized developers from making games on their platform. Um, So this circuit was essentially a lockout chip that stopped unauthorized developers. And Nintendo was able to win back the trust of the video game consumers by instituting an official Nintendo seal of approval for their video game titles. No game was sold in stores for Nintendo without the seal of approval. And this continues as a trend for video games today. I do have a couple more tidbits of Atari trivia if you're interested. Please, please, I am. Okay, so... The first software Easter egg is popularly thought to have occurred in 1979 when programmer Warren Robinette included a hidden message in the Atari 2600 game Adventure, identifying himself as the creator. Oh, okay. So, at the time, Atari didn't include programmers' names in the game credits, fearing that competitors would attempt to steal their employees. Oh, okay. So, Robinette, who disagreed with this lack of acknowledgement, secretly programmed the message created by Warren Robinette to appear only if a player moved their avatar over a specific pixel, dubbed the gray dot, during a certain part of the game and entered a previously forbidden part of the map where the message would be found. Ooh. Robinette kept the existence of the dot and hidden room a secret for more than a year and did not mention it to anyone at a Atari before he left the company. The dot wasn't mentioned in the game's manual at all. And after the game was released, Adam Clayton, a 15-year-old boy from Salt Lake City, discovered how to use the dot to enter the secret room and sent a letter to Atari explaining what he did. Oh my gosh. Robinette was gone by this point, so Atari tasked designers with finding the responsible code. And the term Easter egg, first used in this manner, was coined around 1979 by Steve Wright, who was then the director of software development in the Atari consumer division, in order to describe this hidden message. Um you may have previously heard this tidbit on Mr. Information, but I, f- but I figured it was oh, worth yeah. it was worth bringing up again for sure. It does only come out once a year, yeah. so yeah. Um, in 1989, Atari released the first all-color handheld games console called the Atari Lynx. Oh wow! Okay, it was bigger than the Nintendo Game Boy. Had a 16-bit processor. Could have 18 players link up to play against one another. Wow! But it was about a hundred dollars more expensive than a Game Boy, and the Lynx didn't have a major game like the Game Boy had a Tetris. Oh sure, yeah. Um, to anchor it and sell more product. So it also took six batteries that would die within about four hours of sure, gameplay. Yeah. And so again, Atari had been weakened by the video game crash, and it didn't have the resources to do as much marketing as its competitors. But the Atari Lynx, it was the first color handheld games console. Hey. And it went away. All right. Finally, in January 2020, the owners of the Atari name announced that they have licensed the brand to real estate developers to construct eight Atari-themed hotels in Phoenix, Austin, Chicago, Denver, Las Vegas, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle. So these three dudes in a 
room the in French France. Room. <laughs> um, their plan is to offer virtual reality and augmented reality playing hubs and areas and select hotels for esports gaming conventions. Guest okay. rooms will have themes based on specific games, and in exchange for the brand, Atari will receive 5% of the revenue and got a $600,000 advance for this deal. Okay, that's not too shabby. That's. Yeah, so, you have somebody else do all the work. Stay tuned, everyone. You too might be able to stay in an Atari-themed hotel in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> that sounds personally like my nightmare. But you know what? Life's a rich tapestry. And if you want to do that, go ahead and do it. Exactly. I, 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 Godspeed. That was great. I learned so much. Good. Especially for someone who, and I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, I have not grown up playing video games. Right. I, I'm not a game person to begin with, but I never played video games mm-hmm. as a kid or a teen or even as an adult. I don't have the brain for it or the uh, hand-eye the thumb, coordination, the, the thumb mobility. I am also not a video game person. and um, But in a way, though, I think that makes me good at my job yeah, because, because yeah. I can like... I can like take a step back and I'm mm-hmm. not like super obsessed over like this particular game or this particular person. I'm just like, yep, that's information. That is information. Exactly. I mean, like I like like Tetris. Oh, sure. I love Tetris. So Tetris Effect came out last year okay. and it's really great. It has like really like great soothing music and like fun visuals and stuff. Oh, okay. and so I like to play when I can make sure that the speed will stay at the lowest possible speed. Because yeah. if I'm going to play that, I want to relax. I don't want to like oh, have you an don't anxiety want attack because it's getting faster and yeah. I'm going to die. Um, yeah, like Tetris is fun. I liked a lot of like educational PC games, oh, I sure. guess. Yeah. Like like Carmen Sandiego mm-hmm. is a video game, but like yeah. it's not like a, you know, a strategy video game. game. It's a, that's a point and click, you know, type of thing. And that's yeah. kind of the stuff I'm more... Yeah. comfortable with I think sure but that's great yeah awesome yeah and if you want to uh come and research the papers for the Atari well we're closed to the public oh, until oh. April 13th oh right okay thanks to thanks to <laughs> thanks to COVID-19 COVID-19 which sounds this like a video episode game. brought to you by <laughs> COVID-19 um so but anyway obviously you can learn more about the museum. I'm mm-hmm. happy to chat about stuff. You can come and do research with us when we're open again. It's a very cool place. And they have, um, it seems like just a giant play place full of screaming children, but it is also a uh, very magical one. And uh, two has a lot of like really cool information. Yes. Yeah. I say there's something for everyone. there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. All right. So the name Atari came from the board, the board game Go. Mm-hmm. My quiz tonight is called Go Dog Go. It's a quiz on pop culture dogs and classic children's books not written by Dr. Seuss. Okay. Question one. Santa's little helper is a pet greyhound who resides at 742 Evergreen Terrace along with a cat named Snowball 2 and what well-known American family? Question two. In which classic Ezra Jack Keats book does a boy named Peter get all bundled up in his red winter gear, spending the day outside exploring his neighborhood? Question three. I gotta believe. 
In what 1996 rhythm video game for PlayStation does the eponymous, flat, cartoon dog with a beanie try to impress his crush by rapping his way through tasks like fighting at the Kung Fu Dojo and getting a driver's license? Question four. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of what? Question five. Bullseye, formerly known as Spot, is the beloved official canine mascot of Target Corporation. What three-word dog breed, tinier than you might first think, is Bullseye? Question six. Computer programmer Petri Puro created the computer game Crayon Physics Deluxe, a game in which players use crayons to draw solutions to physics problems after becoming inspired by which 1955 Crockett Johnson book? Question seven. In Legally Blonde, the best movie ever made about Harvard Law School, Elle Woods and her pet Chihuahua Bruiser share what astrological sign? Question eight. Multiple choice. Which of the following does Eric Carle's very hungry caterpillar not eat on Saturday, the day he gets a stomachache? A, a piece of cherry pie. B, a piece of chocolate cake. C, a slice of pizza. Or D, a slice of salami. Question nine. In which children's novel and subsequent movie versions would you find the dogs Pongo, Perdita, Mrs., Prince, and a quantity of puppies equivalent to the atomic number of Berkelium? And finally, question 10. Where does the titular character of Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day keep resolving to move throughout the book? I'll give you about a minute to think and be back with your answers. When you said the name of this quiz, I was like, yes, I'm finally going to get 10 out of 10. And then you started reading the questions. And I will not, today is not that day, Julia. Oh. But I'm feeling okay about this. Good. Good. Okay. All right, all right. So yes, Go Dog Go, a quiz on pop culture dogs and classic children's books not written by Dr. Seuss. Go Dog Go was written by P.D. Eastman, everybody. Mm, good to Just know. don't get that confused. All right, question one. Santa's little helper is a pet greyhound who resides at 742 Evergreen Terrace along with a cat named Snowball 2 and what well-known American family? That's the Simpsons. Yes, it is, Lauren. Yes. Santa's little helper appears in the very first episode of The Simpsons called Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire when Homer and Bart go to the dog racing track on Christmas Eve and end up adopting an abandoned greyhound. Throughout the course of the series, Santa's little helper accomplished such tasks as replacing Duffman as the mascot for Duff Beer Mm. and training as a police dog at Springfield's Animal Police Academy, among other capers. Bless him. Question two. 
In which classic Ezra Jack Keats book does a boy named Peter get all bundled up in his red winter gear, spending the day outside exploring his neighborhood? Is that the snow day? The snow, the snowy day. The snowy day. Great. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, because of stamps. They have stamps now. Yes. <laughs> so um, The Snowy Day was the first children's picture book with an African-American protagonist to yes. win a major children's book award. It won the Caldecott Medal in 1962. If you don't know what that is, just go back a couple episodes, listen yeah. to our literary award episode. It's very good. So the author, Ezra Jack Keats, was born Jacob Ezra Katz and was a white Jewish man. Oh. There were some critics who questioned whether a person with that background could rightfully tell the story of an African-American child, but Keats ultimately received many fan letters from numerous african-american educators activists and children too and yes it is now a stamp yeah it's a stamp it's a beautiful stamp question three i gotta believe in what 1996 rhythm video game for playstation does the eponymous flat cartoon dog with a beanie try to impress his crush by rapping his way through tasks like fighting at the kung fu dojo and getting a driver's license is it Parappa the Rapper? Yes, it is Parappa the Rapper. Oh my God, that came out of literally nowhere. Yes. That came out of literally nowhere. Uh-huh. His name comes from the Japanese term for paper thin. During gameplay, a you rapping meter determines the player's performance, ranking it as either awful, bad, good, or cool. <laughs> Wait. Awful, then bad? Awful, bad, good, and cool. Okay. All right. I guess that's... I guess that's a... <laughs> and by consistently staying on beat, players will stay in the good ranking area. The songs... I've watched Josh play this game like twice. And the songs really... Catchy? Get, yeah, they get stuck in your head. All right. All right. Question four. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of what? Oh, God. <laughs> Am I the only person I know that read this book a bajillion times? Here's the thing. I read that book... A bajillion times. It's good night, This is page one. I know, but (laughs) I have not. My dad read that to me multiple times in at like as a child, but I have not heard it or read it since I was like two. All right. Get the thing. All right. In the great green room. Yep. There was a telephone Uh and a red balloon. Red balloon. And a picture of. A silver spoon. A big blue moon. Uh. Wait, um, a large cartoon. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to keep going. Uh, mm. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of Lorna Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Rice Brown was sponsored by the Lorna cookie company <laughs> an ugly goon an ugly goon <laughs> oh the uh the month of june <laughs> oh no i know um uh a swimming loon no <laughs> i hope your dad is yelling at I you know, right he's now yelling he's so mad at me right now um womb womb no it's a children's right. book um In the the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of a cow jumping over the moon. I'm sorry, Dad. Margaret Wise Brown's first book was The Runaway Bunny, which makes some appearances in Goodnight Moon. Oh, yeah. Um, So there's like kind of like little hidden Easter eggs in the book that are also images from The Runaway Bunny. I see. 
As of 2020, the book sells about 800,000 copies annually. By 2017, it had cumulatively. What's the word? By 2017, it had sold an estimated 48 million copies of The Night Moon. And spawned many parodies, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, Lorna Dune. Lorna Dune. A swimming loon. <laughs> Question five. Bullseye, formerly known as Spot, is the beloved canine mascot of Target Corporation. What three-word dog breed, tinier than you first might think, is Bullseye? So I know it's a bull mastiff. Is that it? A French bull mastiff. Is mastiff one of the words? No, mastiff is not one of the words. Shit. Bull. It's, the bull is, though. Yep, that's in there. Hound, bull, dog, bulldog. Uh, damn it. Bully. Mm, just tell me what it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, bullseye is a miniature bull terrier. Miniature bull terrier. So it's a okay. bull terrier, but miniature. But little. Yeah. They're okay. different than a regular bull terrier. Yeah, because those are like, they have such a fun looking face. Yeah. It's like wide and like... There's but flat. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a miniature bull terrier is usually between 10 and 14 inches tall. What? And according to the American Kennel Club, their weight must be proportionate to their height, ranging between 20 to 35 pounds. Yeah. They're like I don't little- know why, but I thought like this was a bigger dog. No, they're they're little like little nope, tanks. Mini dog. Yeah. So the miniature bull terrier also has origins in the extinct English white terrier, the Dalmatian and the bulldog. Question six. Computer programmer Petri Perot created the computer game Crayon Physics Deluxe, a game in which players use crayons to draw solutions to physics problems after becoming inspired by which 1955 Crockett Johnson book? Is it Harold and the Purple Crayon? Yes. Yes. Harold is a four-year-old boy who, with his purple crayon, has the power to create a world of his own just by drawing it. Mm, It's very cute. Question seven. In Legally Blonde, the best movie ever made about Harvard Law School, Elle Woods and her pet chihuahua bruiser share what astrological sign? So here's the thing. You haven't seen, I haven't seen Legally it. Blonde. I haven't. Um, <laughs> she's she's going to leave. Um, this is another DVD that I'm going to get in the mail eventually. You know what? While you're quarantined, <laughs> yeah, while you can I'm, watch Legally Blonde. All right. All right. Um, I'm going to guess, from what I know about Elle Woods, I'm going to say a Leo. Okay. Okay. Uh, she's a Gemini. Oh. And this is an iconic line from the movie. Apparently. She introduces herself to her study group during orientation with, Hi, I'm Elle Woods, and this is Bruiser Woods, and we're both Gemini vegetarians. Okay. All right. Gemini was going to be my second guess. I'm married to a Gemini. I know what it's like. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, ladies. No, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Question eight. Multiple choice. Which of the following does Eric Carl's very hungry caterpillar not eat on Saturday, the day he gets a stomachache? A, a piece of cherry pie, B, a piece of chocolate cake, C, a slice of pizza, or D, a slice of salami? Okay. So it's been a very long time since I've read this as well. Because uh-huh. when I worked for a little bookstore called Schmarns and Bobel, I never worked in children's. Okay. Um, I, in fact, made it a point to make sure that I did not either shelve or work at any point in children's. So this is going to be a full-on guess. I'm going to say chocolate cake. 
Is it not a chocolate cake? He eats a chocolate cake. He does, he does not eat, see a slice of pizza. Damn. Okay. On Monday, he eats one apple. Okay. On Tuesday, he eats two pears. On Wednesday, he eats three plums. Thursday's four strawberries. Friday's five oranges. And then there's Saturday. So on Saturday, he eats one piece of chocolate cake, one ice cream, one pickle, one slice of cheese, one slice of salami, one lollipop, one piece of cherry pie, one sausage, one cupcake, and one slice of watermelon. Oh on gosh. Sunday, though, he only has one nice green leaf. And now he's a big fat caterpillar mm-hmm. who builds his cocoon and comes out a beautiful butterfly two weeks later. That's a really sweet little book. It, it holds up. <laughs> All, right. All right. Coming back. Okay. Question nine. In which children's novel and subsequent movie versions would you find the dogs Pongo, Perdita, Mrs., Prince, and a quantity of puppies equivalent to the atomic number of Berkelium? Oh, that's 101 Dalmatians. Yes. And mm-hmm. this 1956 novel by Dodie Smith was originally serialized in Women's Day as The Great Dog Robbery. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And finally, question 10. Where does the titular character of Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day keep resolving to move throughout the book? Now, um, part of me thinks that he says something like the moon, but then there's another part it's of me. It's a place on earth. Okay. So, and then there's another part of me that, that is saying that it's like, um, like an unusual city, like Kalamazoo or Scarsdale. <laughs> what a terrible day. I'm going to move to Scarsdale. I'm going to Scarsdale. Um, I don't know, Seattle, Washington. He, uh, he throughout the book, he's constantly threatening to move to Australia. Australia, shoot. Um, so this is one of my favorite children's books. And when I'm having a, no good. you know, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, it really, really nice to read it. Because, you know, those days where you, you drop your coffee in the morning yep. and you snag your shirt on the way out. Yeah. And you know, you, you left go, your lunch at home. And it's just, just go like back to bed. one bad thing and another. You just want to mm-hmm. go back to bed. The book is by Judith Viorst. And um, so, you know, he keeps saying, I should just move to Australia. Um, in the Australian and New Zealand versions of the book, oh. however, he wants to move to Timbuktu instead, mm, okay. which is funny. Yeah, that's pretty good. So there, there she blows. I did better on this than I was expecting. Yeah. So, but it's a very good quiz. Thank you very much, Julia. Um, real quick, I guess we have our um, our 2020 segment. Germs Corner. Um, today, Germ wanted to let you know that available at McDonald's in Hawaii, you can get a Spam breakfast that comes oh. with eggs and rice. You can also get a Portuguese sausage breakfast that also comes with eggs and rice. And you can order yourself a piece of taro pie. Oh. Hmm. Things you can only get on the menu at McDonald's in Hawaii. Hawaii. That's amazing. Um, I also have a mea culpa, by the ah, way. Ah, okay. First of all, thank you, Germ. So I have, uh, I realized um, when I, after I had done back to back for my end, Buffalo and then Lord of the Rings, why I wasn't expecting a bunch of people to text me and be like, um, actually, <laughs> so, and this is not, uh, this is just me being jokey jokey. Um, so, uh, our good friend Lee on Twitter, uh, messaged me on Twitter and, um, told me that, uh, she said that, the episode was fun 
And she said, one nitpicky thing, though. Gimli is the son of Glowin, not Owen. So I mis- misspoke. Gimli, son of Glowin. Great. So I promised her that I would provide G&G. G and G. Good to remember. Together again. And when I said, thank you very much, I will make sure I do it mea culpa. She said, I didn't write the Learned League Lord of the Rings 1DS for nothing. <laughs> so thank you very much to Lee. Um, also, uh, again, I did a Buffalo episode and I knew somebody was going to go. Buffalo. Yeah, did you gonna... just hear yourself yeah, when I you know, said I that? Yeah, I know. I heard it. I heard it. Uh, one of our Twitter followers, Michael. Hi, Michael. He said, the Broadway market is not in the fruit belt or anywhere near the fruit belt. Uh, and I said, you're correct. <laughs> I misspoke. We drove through the fruit, fruit belt uh, to get to the Broadway area. So that is my mistake. Mea culpa to our friends who know a lot more about Buffalo and Lord <laughs> of the Rings than I do. So thank you for that. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, rate, review, and subscribe, you guys. Tell a friend. And thank you so much to everybody who has done that already. It's yeah. really, really kind of you. And, and thank you for everybody that came up to us and chatted with us. Geekable and all of the events leading up to it. We had a lot of fun. It was so good to finally meet you guys since we've been, you know, interacting with you on Twitter or um, Facebook or email, all of that stuff. So it's, it was really nice to meet all of you. And everyone was so lovely and nice. We have the best listeners, I think. We sure do. Yeah. Well, that's it from us. <laughs> Thanks Signing for listening. Signing out. <laughs> 10-4. <laughs> Thanks for listening, you guys. And we'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.